Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. That's our very special guest today, Paul Muldoon, the prize-winning poet, reading from The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats, which turns 100 years young this month. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. For our first post-election episode, we thought we'd take a little break from our own passionate intensity and look at a cultural topic like the centennial of this great poem. But that turns out not to be too much of a break because the second coming still resonates powerfully today with things falling apart around COVID, the 2020 U.S. election, and many other issues. Join us on this episode of The Purple Principle with special guest Paul Muldoon as we ask, how does a century-old Irish poem continue to resonate today? I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. And references to the Second Coming are numerous, frequent, and significant, such as the 1968 Robert Kennedy op-ed on the Vietnam War, entitled Things Fall Apart. Or, somewhat ironically, Margaret Thatcher, the UK Prime Minister in 1975, referencing the passion of her political opponents. And President Barack Obama citing the poem in 2016 in a speech in Germany on the rise of the far right. But the Second Coming is not simply a favorite reference of political leaders. It's also been performed by a wide variety of musicians and writers, such as the Canadian-American singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell. Turning and turning Within the widening gyre Irish actor Cyril Cusick The falcon cannot hear the falconer Things fall apart American indie music duo Slater Kinney. British Irish folk rock band The Waterboys. The best like all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And British actor Dominic West. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. William Butler Yeats, who longed for Ireland's mythical past, was known to attend the occasional seance or two. Was he a true visionary? Is that why he still speaks to us today? Or did he have some help from history moving in familiar patterns? We spoke with Paul Muldoon, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and professor at Princeton University, to help explain the continuing relevance of the Second Coming at 100 years old. But first, a few lines of the Second Coming, which Paul Muldoon recites between interview segments throughout. We've also included his full reading at the end of the episode. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. I think one of the things about a great poem is that there is a sense that it has always existed. It's what I refer to as the eternity of the poem. There's a sense that it was always meant to be like this. And of course, Yeats's theory, which for many of us actually may seem a little madcap 
that's represented in this poem of the cyclical nature of history. His notion of the gyres, a word that's related to the word gyroscope and gyrating, uh, the cycles and circles of history, things coming round again. And uh, that may have seemed fanciful at one point, whereas at the moment, actually, it does indeed seem that there is a cyclical aspect to things. But it does seem to be true, for example, that we learn nothing from history and that some of the issues that were relevant there when Yeats wrote the poem are again relevant. On a personal level, do you recall when you first read the poem and your impressions then, and and are they similar to your impressions as you reread it today? As a teenager at high school, grammar school as we called it, I certainly became much more deeply involved with Yeats and would have read The Second Coming as a child in Ireland in the 1960s. And certainly there was an element of Irish politics ghosting this poem. And indeed, in the late 1960s, of course, when I went to Belfast as a student, civil unrest, as they call it, was again a feature of the landscape, just as it had been in the US. And indeed, the Irish civil rights movement had been influenced by the US civil rights movement. And of course, it was a time of political upheaval right through Europe. So there was a sense that uh, this poem was speaking to us and our history. So, Paul, it seems around the time that he writes this poem, Yeats has multiple identities. He's a nationalist working to promote Irish culture through playwriting, but obviously he's interested his whole life in mythology and mysticism. Is it too simple to say his political personas in the first stanza, the center cannot hold, and his more restless mythical one in the second stanza, the rough beast stanza? Well, that certainly seems to apply. I mean... The notion of mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, certainly would uh, refer to the state of the nations. And um, in that sense, actually, it's a a poem about a lack of resolution in a strange way. But Yeats was able to include so many ideas in his poems, most of them actually rather nutty. He believed in the fairies, for example, which, um, you know, most of us from Ireland may have some passing regard for the notion of fairyland, but uh, we have pretty much moved beyond it. But somehow he manages to make great poetry despite the oddness, craziness of his ideas. Having said that, you know, I think Yeats was engaged here with grave matter with grave material and um, was concerned about the state of the world a hundred years ago. So another important influence here is Maud Gaughan, sometimes called his muse or lover, also the leading lady in many of his plays, and she was more revolutionary than he was. So was it his ambivalence that allowed him to make observations about those who, in Yeats's words, were so passionate? Well, passionate is a word that he uses quite often in his poems, and um, 
His great passion, of course, or one of them, was indeed for Maud Gone, the pedestalized figure, the unattainable goddess. And he, he, she represented that for him. She, you know, brushed him off again and again, finally marrying John McBride. She became Maud Gone McBride. So um, he did become energized, though, by the Irish political scene. And he became an advocate for um, Irish nationalism, partly, partly through the influence of Maud but there were many other influences at work there also. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. That was prize-winning poet Paul Muldoon speaking about and then reading from The Second Coming, a 16-line poem by W.B. Yeats that resonates as powerfully today as it has for 100 years. For example, the great Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe entitled his 1958 anti-colonial novel, Things Fall Apart, a phrase from The Second Coming. And the respected American journalist Joan Didion named her reportage on 1960s counterculture with another reference, slouching towards Bethlehem. But Yeats wrote this poem in Ireland, way back during the tumultuous end of World War I, when tensions still were high throughout Europe. The Russian Civil War had erupted, and animosities were building in Ireland not just toward British rule, but toward an eventual civil war of its own. I spoke with Paul Muldoon about the influences at work on Yeats as he wrote the poem, as well as his influence on poetry today. The darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. There are those who would say, of course, that one of the reasons why this poem has had such enduring qualities is that, in fact, it's less than specific about uh, the politics of the moment. Mind you, there are those who say that one must be specific and that he could easily have retained his references to Russia and Germany in the poem, and it would still have worked. That's a, a mystery. It's really impossible now to figure that out. We're so used to this particular version of it. But Yeats always had a sense of the big picture, the picture that is uh, 2,000 years um, or 4,000 or 6,000 years broad or wide. He is, I think, probably quite educatedly going for images that will resonate uh, for a long time. Yeah, there's also, uh, to the very amateur ear, an interesting mix of language, very simple phrases, the center cannot hold, but much more 
ambitious language. Is that typical of a Yeats poem, or is it more unique to this particular one? Yeats's vocabulary is fascinating. I mean, he can go from one moment to um, the very matter-of-fact um, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, which is a line, when you think about it, that um, for many people in 1919 would have seemed on or a poetical, whereas the notion of a gyre, um, which of course uh, is something that he uh, pretty much invented himself, yet uh, you know was um, extremely inventive, and uh, he was able to forge a vocabulary that had very far-flung elements. He's very interested in the imagery of the forge, the smithy, right? The forging of metals. It's one of his favorite areas of metaphor and symbol. So he does put these um, elements together and uh, melts them down and fuses them. And uh, that is an important element of his poetic practice. So then turning to your own life experience, Paul, you've lived and traveled in many places. When has the second coming come to mind as you've moved around? Has it been in mind recently in the U.S.? Did it come to mind during Brexit or other times? Well, uh, you know, it is a poem that comes to mind when we see the appearance of the uh, dictator, the tyrant, the autocrat. And I suppose it's a poem that does come to mind um, when we recognize how, alas, in our society, many of the best do indeed seem to lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity as we see now in November 2020. There's plenty of evidence for both uh, lack of conviction and uh, passionate intensity. Yeats was not only interested in politics, but he wasn't himself a politician, which is something that we tend to forget. Yeats was a member of the Irish Senate, and he often spoke memorably in the Senate and he was involved in putting through all kinds of um, interesting legislation. And he um, generally uh, of a very forward-looking type. So he had some sense of the smoke-filled room, what happens behind the scenes in politics, and um, as well as what happens on the streets. So to answer your question, yes, I mean, I do think of this poem, and I think many do, in our present um, circumstances. And then what about Yeats's influence as a poet? When I was in college, somewhat late last century, he was often called the greatest, most influential English language poet of the 20th century. How's he doing in the 21st century? Yeats's influence continues to be quite um, huge. When one looks back to those who seem to have been able to do it with a certain uh, aplomb, let's say. Yeats is definitely up there. And one of the reasons why he's up there, uh, I believe, uh, has to do with his unwillingness 
to rest on his laurels, such as they were. You know, had he stopped writing in 1900 or 1910, he would probably still be remembered as a, a pretty good late Victorian, maybe into uh, the Edwardian era poet. But of course, he um, upped his game, or his game was upped for him uh, by circumstances in Ireland. In his famous elegy for Yeats, Auden, W.H. Auden refers to uh, Mad Ireland Hurt You Into Poetry. And I think there's some truth in that. Yeats was forced, really, to find a way of coming to terms with what was happening on the streets. And he um, was forced to find a way to also come to terms with what was happening uh, among the other uh, poets who would become known as the, the modernists. So one of the reasons why he has endured again, I think has to do with his restlessness. One will always recognize Yeats's voice coming through in a poem. There's a great consistency there, as there is in all uh, major poets. But uh, there's also his constant attempt to change and be equal to the moment. And what rough beast, it's our come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. That was our featured guest today, the renowned poet Paul Muldoon, reading a few lines of The Second Coming, and in this interview, helping us understand how a century-old poem by Irishman William Butler Yeats still conveys our fears today in these not-very-United States. Yeats himself was ambivalent and inconsistent in his own political beliefs, at times highly cynical of democratic ideals, which he feared could result in mob rule. But Yeats obviously knew quite a bit about human passion, the cycles of history, and the power of symbols, all of which come together in The Second Coming. It was published 100 years ago this month in the American literary magazine Dial. In our next episode, the second of two parts on, no pun intended, The Second Coming, we'll speak with the award-winning filmmaker Brianna Nick Diermida. Her eight-part series, 1916, The Irish Rebellion, chronicles Ireland's struggle for independence in the early 1900s. A struggle William Butler Yeats was directly involved in for most of his life. So you had all this upheaval going on when Yeats began to write. And again, that very month that he began to write this poem, what became known as the War of Independence started, the Black and Tan War. No one knew what was going to happen. Where was this going to end? So you have, on a personal level, you have the pandemic of the flu. You have the flux of Irish politics. What was going to happen? It was just after, of course, 1918, the end of the First World War. 
an absolute horror scape. You had millions of, of, of young men dead in trenches, dead in ditches. Uh, you had upheaval all over the world, particularly in the British Empire that was beginning to come apart at the seams. You had the Bolshevik Revolution. So I think all of those things were playing on his mind when he wrote this poem. Please stay tuned for that. Share us on social media and visit our website, purpleprinciple.com, for more information on this and other episodes. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team, Emily Crisetti, staff reporter, Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer, research and fact-checking by Emily Holloway and Johnny Dowling, marketing and outreach by Janice Murphy. Our original music, with a touch of the Irish today, was composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. This will play out beneath a complete reading of The Second Coming by our special guest, Paul Muldoon. The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast it's our come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born.